It's been, wow, it's been a minute, y'all. All right, you guys, I know it's been a while, but gas prices are crazy right now. In fact, they're so bad, I went to the gas station and they're charging for air now. They're charging $2.50. Inflation. Yep, that's right. Dad jokes are back and we are back. It's been, wow, it's been a minute, y'all. And I know, I hope you've been enjoying the Catholicism 101 series. Uh, put a lot of work and time and love into that and I hope it's been blessing you. But it's over now and it's a whole new world, a whole new world ahead of us. And oh man, I hope I don't have to pay for that. Anyway, um, <laughs> welcome back, friends. Um, it's good to be with you. Um, it's been been a while. So I want to get into the joy, junk, and Jesus and let you know kind of what's going on. So joy in my life right now is um, life is good. I've had a lot of time to rest and um, rejuvenate and really kind of look at my, I don't know, my life, my commitments, the things I say yes to. I've been saying no a lot more, which I highly recommend. And it is currently Lent um, as I'm recording this and when it will be playing. And, and I feel like Lent is going pretty well. So yeah, all in all, a lot of joy uh, in my life. My kids and my wife bring me a lot of joy, um, good friendships. And so yeah, life is good. Junk, um, I had a cancer scare um, during the midst of this 101 episodes um, premiering and I haven't updated you in a while. So uh, long story short, had to get an ultrasound on my thyroid for something neck related, found a lot of different masses in my neck and my thyroid, uh, had to get them biopsied and turned out that I have Hashimoto's disease and sometimes that manifests in a immune uh, response from my body attacking my thyroid, which is what Hashimoto's is in the development of these nodule-like masses on my thyroid, which sometimes come and go, or they just stay and they're monitored. So that's kind of been um, a bit of a journey and learning curve for me and having now an autoimmune disease. So, um, and especially one that has no cure, no treatment, I just kind of have to live with it. So uh, praise God that it's not cancer or anything worse, but um, yeah, I'm still navigating that. So your prayers are much appreciated for that. Uh, Jesus moment. Right now, this week, we're in the middle of our parish mission, and we had our first night of it last night, which I ran uh, and did my conventional Monday night Bible study, which I normally do at the parish, but did it in a different space at a special time for a much larger group of people and got a lot of great feedback on that and really felt like the spirit was moving. And so, uh, yeah, and that kind of relates to uh, what these next few episodes are going to be and what might be coming down the pipeline in this podcast. So, uh, for these next few episodes, I'm going to share um, some previously uh, given talks that I've done on Scripture. And I know, I know, I've done a lot of previously recorded talks. I'm not being lazy, but uh, I've been thinking a lot about this Bible study I do every week and how it'd be great to package the audio of it and have it available for you on the podcast uh, so you can listen to that and be preparing for the upcoming Sunday Mass by uh, diving into the Gospel, especially. And so I'm going to start doing that in the coming weeks. But to segue into that, I gave a three-part teaching uh, for our RCIA that was not part of our Catholicism 101 series on Scripture. Uh, part one on how to read and pray with the Bible, part two on the Old Testament, and part three on the New Testament. And so uh, I'm going to be sharing those uh, talks with you in these next few episodes, and I hope they bless you. I hope you enjoy them. 
And, um, yeah, also hoping that um, you will – I can't remember what I was going to say, that you will like them. I, was, I feel like I was going to say that you will like and subscribe, but I'm not a YouTuber, so I don't know why I was going to say that. But a reminder – that you can become a financial supporter to this podcast for as little as $1 a month by going to our website, www.manafoodforthought.com and clicking on the Patreon tab. Uh, make sure you continue to share this podcast with others. Um, this podcast has grown quite a bit, actually. Our listeners have like quadrupled in the time that these Catholicism 101 episodes have been premiering. So uh, praise God for that. I hope that's been nourishing to you, as I said. But um, I want to segue into the first of these three-part episodes on Scripture. So without further ado, enjoy this talk um, that I gave earlier this year, um, or late, I guess you could say, in 2021, to our RCIA community on how to read and pray with Scripture. So one of my favorite authors that I mentioned last week is C.S. Lewis. He wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I've read a lot of the things that he's written. Um, his favorite thing that he ever wrote, I don't know if you know this, is a sci-fi trilogy. Uh, it's a three-part series um, all about like what if uh, the planets held different life uh, and that life was in different forms of how the gospel had been understood or, you know, so Venus um, is like before the Garden of Eden and things like that. It's a very interesting trilogy. But I could read all I ever could find about C.S. Lewis, but it would be kind of silly if C.S. Lewis wrote an autobiography and said, this is everything that you need to know about me and understand about what I wrote and why I wrote what I did and what it represents, and if I just kind of refuse to read it. And I think sometimes that's how we approach the Bible, is that this is God's story that's been passed down generation to generation, put together by the church for us to have and to us to know the, the message that God wants for us to have, and yet we can read a lot of, you know, spiritual things and good books. You know, we can watch a lot of or go through a lot of different programs, but maybe we don't read God's autobiography. And he himself has told us this is the most important thing. Jesus says, I am the word made flesh. Himself often quoting the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. So we see that it is, it is very important to him. We can read the catechism, we can read all these other things, but if we don't spend time in the Bible, then we cannot say that we know Jesus. St. Jerome, who's the patron saint of scholars and scripture, librarians, who's a very astute uh, scriptural theologian, he said, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. That if we don't know the Bible, then we cannot say we know Jesus. We may have heard a lot about how other people talk about Jesus, but we can encounter God, we can encounter Jesus in sacred scripture. In fact, I think it was Thomas Merton who said, we encounter Jesus in three ways, in sacred scripture, in our innermost selves, and in the people around us. And a lot of times we're best at maybe hearing the people around us, gathering community, right? Catholic means universal. We all get together, we love having a good party, we love having a good hoedown or whatever it might be. And then sometimes we get good at being self-aware and praying and looking at our, you know, kind of internal reflection. But scripture, historically for Catholics, especially in the last 50 years, has not been our strong suit across the board. And so you may be coming here this morning with a variety of levels of knowledge of the scripture. You, you may be a scriptural scholar or you may be a complete novice, maybe not even sure how to navigate this book 
very intimidated by it. And so I want to encourage you, first of all, to know that this morning you're going to leave with the ability to go home, open your Bible, and pray with it. And you will not need to know all this historical data. You will not need to know, you know exactly what happens in every single book to do that. But to equip you with the skill to be able to dive into God's Word and to hear Him speak to you. And so this morning, I want to give you a little bit of a background of why we have this book and how to navigate it. But I want to start by saying there is a general overarching message of the Bible. And that is this, that God loves you and he wants to be united with you. Period. That's it. God loves you and he wants to be united with you. That is the entire story of this book. He loves you and he wants to be united with you. That is why you will see one of the most popular verses ever quoted, ever shared. You probably see it with the guy with the rainbow wig at every football game. Uh, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that we might, whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. That is the message. That God created us because he loves us and wants to be united with us. But sin separates us from that causing us to perish, and because we couldn't reconcile that and rebuild that relationship, God came down to be one of us and unite us with him again so that we could be back in, in that loving, unified relationship with him. That is the entire message of Scripture. The entire message. So somewhere along the line, when you open a Bible, you are somewhere in that story. God creating and loving a people or choosing them, them rebelling and God trying to win them back through a covenant or something like that, them being taken into exile or slavery because they don't listen, and then eventually him coming down in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, the incarnation, to redeem us and institute a church so that we could be reminded of that and receive that grace of that eternal gift on the cross through the sacraments. So depending on where you are in the Bible, you're somewhere along that story. Now we can sometimes make a mistake of opening the Bible on page one and saying, all right, I'm going to start. This is the year. I'm going to read the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and I'm just going to go straight through to the end. Because you know what's going to happen? You're going to hear some cool stories that you've heard before in Genesis. And you'll be like, okay, I've seen the movie Prince of Egypt. Once I get to Exodus, I know this. And then you're going to get to Leviticus, and you are not going to want to read anymore. Because it is very dull, very strange, weird combination of laws from a people who are long, long ago forgotten. Not forgotten, but we, that cultural way of life is no longer practiced, even by the Jews themselves, because we no longer have a temple. And so you're going to be very bogged down by the 613 laws of Judaism, and you're probably not going to be that inspired to get to the New Testament. So the first thing we have to understand about the Bible is that the word Bible means biblia, where we get, you know, biblioteca, library. It's a library. Okay, this is not a book, this is a collection of 73 books. Small library, but the most important one that has ever existed. And so when you open a Bible, you have to know what book am I pulling off the shelf inside of this library? Because it's not a narrative beginning to end story. It's rearranged, things are organized in sections. You also have to understand the context that the Bible was written, started being written down around 1200 BC, and was not completed until about 100 AD. So 1300 years, a lot changes in 1300 years. Culture, history, language. It was written by potentially over 100 different authors. And it was written in three primary different languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. 
predominantly Hebrew and Greek. And so, anyone here speak Hebrew and Greek? No? Okay, I'm maybe a little bit, but not that that well, you know. So we're already working at a disadvantage because we don't understand potentially the context that this was written in. And that is why we have the church. That is why last week I talked about truth. I talked about the tradition of the church and why we need the church because the scriptures, the Bible, is the fruit of the church's tradition. We would not have this if it had not been for the church. And the church continues to teach us how to interpret it, to know what was the proper context, what was going on at the time when these things were written. And so you might hear this word thrown around, the canon of scripture. So I'm not talking about like a you know, Civil War canon, C-A-N-O-N. And that's a word that means the measuring rod or the ruler of scripture. So the canon of scripture is what are the official books that are meant to be in the Bible? Now you may know this, you may not, but in Catholic Bibles, we have more books than most other Bibles that you've probably uh, had in your home or that you've seen. So if you look at your resource sheet on the second page, this is the list of the books in the Catholic Bible. And there are some books on here that, you may, that may seem unfamiliar. If they have a little cross next to them in the left column, those are called deuterocanonical books. That means the second canon or the second, it was the, um, they're all written in Greek. I'll talk a little bit about that. But um, in most Protestant Bibles, King James Version, you know, most very readily available, the Gideon Bible that you have that you maybe have stolen in the uh, hotel desk drawer of every hotel room you've stayed in. Um, the Bible is the most shoplifted book on the planet, by the way. There's a fun fact for you. And it's been translated into every language on earth, including Klingon from Star Trek. So um, people love the Bible. Um, so in many Old Testaments, you may not recognize some of these books. Judith, Tobit. First and second Maccabees, certain parts of Esther and Daniel, books like Wisdom and Sirach. Those may be books that you have never even delved into because in most Bibles they're not there. But in the Catholic Bibles, they're there and they've always been there since the early church. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. So to understand the Bible, we have to understand where it comes from. We say Old Testament. And that kind of is, if you think about it, a little derogatory to our Jewish brothers and sisters, right? We're the new ones. You guys are old. You know, that's kind of what it implies, right? But the Old Testament, it was really the Hebrew Bible. You could call it the First Testament. The First Testament. The First Covenant is what the word testament means. And it's God reaching out to the Jewish people. It's the story of the Jewish people being chosen by God and being led into the promised land and struggling to maintain a faithful relationship with God when all of these other temptations come in. So the Hebrew Bible, they arrange it in 24 books, but they combine some. It's the exact same as most other Protestant Old Testaments. And that's called the Masoretic Text, uh, or the Hebrew Bible, or it's called sometimes the Palestinian Canon, the Jewish Canon of Scripture. And that is all written in Hebrew. And so these were books that were collected, they were passed around, they were uh, read in synagogues, but not every synagogue had all of these books because Paper was expensive. Um, people needed to actually sit down and scribe these things out by hand. And so most had the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is the overall story of God creating and choosing the Jewish people and giving them the law, all of those 613 laws of Judaism. And every child, starting from the age of five until about the age of 10, boys and girls memorized those five books of the Bible in Jewish culture when they went to synagogue school. And so that was part of their everyday life. And then rabbis would come along, uh, synagogue gatherings, 
and they would open the scroll, read things that were familiar, and they would interpret it. And that was how it was taught. It was passed on by oral tradition for centuries before it was actually written down. Now, sometimes people will say, well, how do we know that then anything in the Bible is true, right? Because I tell my friend one thing, and then my friend tells someone, you ever played that game, Telephone? You know, and you try and say something like, banana, elephant, sing, sing along donuts, you know, or something, and then it passes around, and it's like, you are a German poodle, is what you get at the end, or something weird, you know? And so people think the same thing must have happened with the Bible, right? Over years and years and years and generations. But no, the way that the Hebrew uh, church, the Jew our Jewish brothers and sisters, practice oral tradition is that you have to memorize it word for word. There was not allowed to be a mistake. Scribal errors were very rare. A scribe was a very coveted and very professional position, and it was something that was not taken lightly. It was considered a sacred art. And so that Old Testament was translated into Greek. So that Hebrew Old Testament, there's 39 books in that Old Testament, First Testament, seven less than we have. That was translated into Greek, and there's this famous story that's called the Septuagint. It's a famous story um, where, uh, I can't remember who it was, a ruler um, said that he wanted this, oh, I have it right here. Alexander the Great uh, was the founding of the Greek Empire. He spread it all over the world. And then the Emperor Ptolemy II, he was a pharaoh in Egypt, a Greek pharaoh in Egypt. He wanted the entire Jewish scriptures to be in Greek. And so there's this legend that says he got 70 translators. That's where Septuagint comes from, 70. And he locked them all in separate rooms. And he said, I want you to translate this into this Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And they all came out and they all had the exact word for word translation magically. Right? And so that became the Septuagint. Now what probably happened is 70 people came in a room and bickered for a very long time and agreed, okay, this is how we translate this into Greek. But that's how the legend goes. And so 70 people, you may see it abbreviated LXX anytime you see that, that's the Septuagint. That became the Greek Old Testament. So why is that important? Well, that happened um, about 100 or 200 years before Jesus, and the translation of the Hebrew Scriptures that Jesus uses most often is that one. It's the Greek one. And the seven books that we have in our Old Testament that our Protestant brothers and sisters do not, we only have manuscripts of them in Greek for the most part. And so they weren't ever included in the Hebrew canon because we don't have them in Hebrew. But the translation of the First Testament that Jesus used included them. So there are 46 books in our Old Testament, and we revert to that translation because that's the translation Jesus used. Him and the apostles, that's the one they would have learned. Greek was a very common language by that time. The um, Holy Land had very much become Hellenized and then taken over by Rome. And so this is the one that they use. And so if you look at that list, that is the list of scriptures that was agreed upon in the very early church. And then there was some disagreement here and there, but the Old Testament basically was ratified or confirmed along with the New Testament at the end of the 300s AD, or about the fourth century, in a series of church councils. So Catholic bishops of the Catholic Church came together and agreed, this is the Old Testament translation that we're going to use, and then these are the official books of the New Testament. Now what's interesting is that all Christian denominations across the board, we have the exact same New Testament. And yet, we agree, disagree about all these things when it comes to who? Jesus. And yet Jesus is in the New Testament. We have these same books, the same translation, all in the same language. There's no difference. And yet there's all this disparity and disagreement 
about who's right and who's wrong. But that is why you may see uh, and hear that there are certain books in our testament. So we did not add books. And Martin Luther at the Protestant Reformation, he did not take books out. There were some books he definitely had a problem with. He wanted to take out like James and other books like that that disagreed with the teaching on faith and works and certain criticisms he had of the church. But he just reverted back to the Hebrew translation of scriptures. We continue using the Greek translation of the Old Testament because that's what Jesus used. Okay, so I hope that makes sense if you've ever heard that disparity. So go home and look at your Bibles and see what translation you have. See if those books are in your Bible. Now, if they're not, don't throw the Bible away. Okay, it's still the Word of God. Uh, it's just missing maybe a little bit of a section. Okay, so make sure you at least have a Bible that has that, those seven books. So there are two main official translations as Catholics that we use of the Bible. And one is the New American Bible, now it's the Revised Edition. So if you borrowed a red Bible over here, uh, that's what that is. All of you who received a Bible today in RCIA, that is a New American Bible, Revised Edition. Um, this Bible here as well is a New American Bible, Revised Edition. This is the translation we hear at Mass. So you will hear word for word what we hear at the pulpit. There's one other translation, it's called the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. And that is the um, more word-for-word -word accurate translation that we use in all of our theology and that's quoted in the Catechism. Those are the two main Catholic translations. There are some other ones or some partial translations that the church has approved, but those are the two main ones. So I'd encourage you, go home, look at that book that maybe um, is on your coffee table or on your shelf and has a little dust on it and see if you have those books. Now, what's also interesting is that some Eastern churches, like the, our Orthodox brothers and sisters, or some Eastern rites of Christianity, have even more than that in their Old Testament. Did you know that there's a third and fourth book of Maccabees? And books of Esdras, and things like that in their Old Testament? So there's a lot of other things like that that ended up being circulated in that part of the world. And when those churches eventually split off, they said, you know what, because we're not part of the Catholic Church anymore, let's use these books that have kind of been circulated for a long time in our community. And they included those now in their Old Testament. So that's why you see some disparity. But we have what we have and use what we use because it's what Jesus used. And we try to be faithful to that translation. So enough of the, uh, the history. Uh, I want you to open to the table of contents in your Bible or in a Bible or look on your thing or look on the sheet. Um, and just kind of see there the books laid out. They should be in a similar uh, sectional format in the list that I provided you. And you should see that they all have kind of an abbreviation, kind of a shorthand, just like we have two letter uh, abbreviations for all the states. There are two to four letter abbreviations for all of the books in the Bible. And the table of contents shows you where those start. So if you ever have trouble navigating the Bible, there is a table of contents. Feel free, it's not like you're cheating, to turn to that, you know, if you don't know where a certain book is, and find the translation, or find the abbreviation that you're looking for, and turn to that page. Now these books are arranged sectionally. So the first five books, those are called the Torah. We call them the Pentateuch, that's Greek for first five, or five books. Then we have a series of historical books telling that story that started in the Torah and then continues of, G of God choosing the Jewish people and trying to make this covenant with them. And then constantly breaking it and then making another covenant, breaking it, making another covenant. And throughout that whole time, there are things called biblical novellas and wisdom books. There's these little stories 
of people along the way who are trying to be faithful to God, and they serve as these little novel reminders. You could read them. They're almost like short stories. And then the wisdom books are all practical advice or songs, prayers, that are written all throughout this historical period about what it means to live in relationship with God, or books of prayers that are written when we're trying to live in right relationship with God, and maybe we're doing that well, or maybe we're not. That's like the book of Psalms. There's lamenting Psalms when we're not doing so great with the Lord, and then there's Psalms of thanksgiving and praise when we are doing really great with the Lord. And then time and time again, as people turned away from God, God sent prophets to say, hey, you need to turn back. You need to return back to the covenant. And so we have these prophets listed, and some of them have little stars next to them. Those are called the major prophets, not because they're more important, but because we have a major more amount written from them than we have from the rest. In fact, the Hebrew scriptures, they lump all the other rest of the prophets together in one book, all the minor prophets, because they're very small books. So you may not have read many of those minor prophets. You may never have sat down and read Habakkuk or Obadiah or uh, Joel or Malachi or any of those books. But they have these rich reminders of the promises that God has given us and that a lot of the sin and suffering that we experience in the world are from disobeying God or turning away. But God is still promising a redeemer. He's still promising hope. And that hope comes in the New Testament. You see the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles is there. It was originally part of the Gospel of Luke. And then all of these letters written by Paul about the early church and about what it means to live in relationship with God and then some of those other Catholic letters and visions at the end. And so spend some time looking through just the structure of the Bible and understanding how to navigate that. Now here's something, you may have never been formally taught this, and this is a question I think people are often embarrassed to ask, but if you see this, this is a biblical citation. This is how people quote the Bible. So this is LK means Luke, and if you didn't know that, you could look in the table of contents. The first number tells you what chapter of that book. Okay, so LK1 means you're gonna go find Luke and go to chapter one. And then the colon separates the verse. And if there's more than one verse, there'll be a hyphen to the, where you're gonna end. So it could be 37 to 39. And that means you're gonna read verses 37, 38, and 39. Luke 1, 37, for nothing shall be impossible for God. One of my favorite Bible verses. So do me a favor, really quickly in your Bible, go find Luke 1, 37. If you need to use the table of contents, do that. And when you get there, especially if you have a brand new Bible, break it in, maybe underline that verse. <gasps> yes, write in your Bible. Our Bibles are meant to be studied. Our Bibles are meant to be messy, to be full with our reflections and our response to the Word of God who is speaking to us. Okay, so try and find that. Luke chapter 1, verse 37. And as you do... I want to talk, um, get into talking about, now that we can maybe understand a very basic structure of the Bible, what's the real practical thing that we as Catholics can do with this Bible, especially when it comes to interpreting the Bible and praying with the Bible? Okay, because two people of two different faith denominations will look at the same verse and they will come up with two radically different interpretations of it. So who's right? If the verse, if the verse says what it says and they're both literally interpreting what it says, who's right? Who's correct? And so as Catholics, we interpret scripture in many different ways. We consider that scripture has layers. So I'm going to share with you five different layers of scripture when you're reading a verse. The first is literal. First is literal. For nothing is impossible for God, that verse. That literally says God can do anything. Nothing is impossible for him. 
Okay, so that's the literal translation. You don't need any historical context. You don't really need to know literally what's happen happening. Sometimes you may not understand what that literally means. And so you will look down at the bottom of the page of the Bible and there are footnotes there. So if you ever see a little um, asterisk, that means there's a footnote down at the bottom and you try and find where that verse corresponds. Now, if you see a tiny little letter, a little A, B, C, or D, that means it's a cross-reference. And then you find that little letter somewhere else on that page and it tells you where else in the Bible that is said or that there's a similar teaching or something to help you interpret that. Now, if you turn back a page or two in the Gospel of Luke, you will see a whole lot of introductory text, maybe in italics. So if you have no idea who Luke was, when he wrote, why he wrote what he did, you go and read that first introductory thing and that tells you all that information. Who is Luke? What is a gospel? When did he write this and why did he write it? Who was his audience? Why is it different from the other gospels? And so all that commentary stuff is there. And a lot of times when we read the Bible, we ignore those things because maybe we don't know what they're there for. But the New American Bible has a lot of great resources, footnotes, and commentaries in it. And that will help you know what the literal translation or the literal interpretation is. Secondly, our second way we interpret is personal. This is not an official church way, but we always have our personal way of interpreting scripture. So I might read that verse, for nothing is impossible for God, and I might personally interpret that and say, well, there's something going on in my life that sure feels impossible. And so it's good to be reminded that God is here with me in this, and that if this is meant to be, if this is part of his plan, he's going to make it work in my life. There's nothing about the Bible, really, that I'm interpreting. It's something that God is speaking into my own life. And we're really going to be diving into that in a moment when we teach you how to pray with Scripture. Um, so we have literal and personal. Now, the other three, we really get into kind of some theological ones. And these are allegorical, moral, and a really fun uh, $5 word, Catholic world, anagogical. So allegorical, moral, and anagogical, or anagogical. Um, so those basically are interpreting through the lens of faith, love, and hope. So allegorical is through the lens of faith. So if I read, for nothing is impossible for God, I might be reminded of examples in Scripture by the radical faith of people who believed in God and impossible things were made possible. And I could look at a cross-reference to find that, or I could think about stories that I've heard, like in the, the story of Moses, who had a stutter, and yet he was able to speak to all these people and lead them out of slavery in Egypt. So I can interpret it through the lens of faith. What does this cause me to believe? What does this relate to in our belief elsewhere? So that's the allegorical, is through the lens of faith. Moral is through the lens of love. For nothing is impossible for God. Does that imply anything morally for me? That might imply that I need to be willing to be obedient to the Lord. Because it doesn't say nothing is impossible for Matt Zemanek. It says nothing is impossible for God. And if I'm trying to force something to be possible in my life, and it's seeming impossible, then maybe that means I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. And so we can find some moral interpretation for almost any verse in Scripture. What does this teach me about how to live? So the allegorical teaches us about what we believe. Okay, literal is what does it say? Personal is what does it say to me? Allegorical, what does this teach me about what we believe? And moral is, how do I act? What am I supposed to do? And then the last one is the anagogical. That's all about through the lens of hope. And that is all about pointing to our destiny, our eternity. So what does this say about my life now and how it points to an eternal reality? 
So to say nothing is impossible for God, I can interpret that and say, well, that means that anyone, no matter what they've done, no matter what sins they've committed, is destined for heaven, and that is not an impossible journey for them. But God has to be a part of that, and they need to recognize that. So I can interpret that five different ways, get five different meanings from the same verse. And none of those are untrue. They're all partially true, part of the layers of Scripture. And so the church guides us to help us interpret these different layers of Scripture. This is why we need the church. This is why we need tradition. Because remember, this was written in Greek. This was written in Hebrew. It did not come with chapter and verse markers. Those were added in the, in the Middle Ages. It did not come with punctuation. It didn't come with tone or emphasis. The church teaches us all of those things based on its literal and uh, linguistic scholars how we're supposed to interpret this. So take this phrase, I never said she stole money. Okay, I never said she stole money. You might see that, pretend you're seeing that written in the Bible. I never said she stole money. Now if I put an emphasis on any one of those words, the meaning changes. I never said she stole money. 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 See how the meaning changes in all of those? And so we need the church to guide us because the Bible is full of things that we have no tone, no emphasis. There are some little emphasis marks in Hebrew and Greek. But we can't read that. We don't speak Hebrew. We don't speak Greek. We don't have that manuscript in front of us. And so the church helps us and interprets those things. Another example is the biblical word for love. Okay, when we say, I love you, we have one word for love in English. In Arabic, they have 13 different words. In biblical Greek, they have four. And they all have different meanings. And so when we're reading the word love, we have to ask, okay, well, what kind of love is this? because there are different facets of love according to, uh, to the Greek language. There's agape, which is sacrificial love, the love expected in the covenant that God gives us, that a marriage is expected to have. There's philia, like brotherly love, the city of Philadelphia. There's eros, romantic, passionate love. And then there's storgia, which is the natural love between family or kin. And so when we're reading a scripture, if it says, well, love this person, love your enemies, well, we kind of need to know what version of love is expected of us. Am I supposed to be romantic toward my enemies? Or am I supposed to be sacrificially loving them? Or some other form of love? And so we need the church to guide us in those things. So here are some tips when it comes to interpreting scripture. And then we'll talk very briefly about how to pray through scripture. And so one thing is that we cannot fall into biblical literalism. We cannot just read what it says and say, this is how it happened no matter what, because that's what it says. And a lot of our Christian brothers and sisters do that. And they have good intentions, I'm sure, in doing that. And you maybe have taught, been taught an interpretation of the Bible that says that. But you take Genesis 1, for instance, when God created the world in six days. That doesn't mean six literal days. How do we know that? Well, on day four, what does God create? The sun and the moon, the ways we determine how long a day is. So what was a day before that? And the Hebrew word for day is a period of time. It's not 24 hours. And so because we know that, we can have a looser, more um, story or mythical interpretation of those first 11 books of Genesis. We'll talk a little bit more about this tomorrow. That see them in their context, which are these stories that are passed down, not to tell us the who, what, where, when, how of what happened, but the why of what had happened. So as Catholics, we can believe in evolution, and we can also see truth in Genesis chapter 1. 
And also, I don't know if you know, to, know this, but Genesis chapter 1 has a heading, I think, probably the story of creation. And if you go to Genesis chapter 2, there's another heading there, and it says a second story of creation. Well, if we're reading the Bible literally, then which one is true? And there are different details in both. And so we need the church to help us interpret that. So we cannot be literal. We also have to avoid reading into Scripture our own modern ideas of what things mean. This happens a lot when you see the word slavery in Scripture. Because as Americans, we think of the horrors of American slavery and how terrible that was. But in Hebrew terms, when they had all these laws about the slaves that they kept, a slave was someone who was like an indentured servant who owed them a certain amount of debt and worked for them for seven years. And then they were released. And they were treated as one of the family. They had to be provided for, respected. And there were a lot of laws about what could or could not be done with your slave. And so those words, we have to be wary of how we're putting our own interpretation on them, making sure that we know we're reading out the proper thing. Something I would really recommend to you is to go on YouTube. This is a Protestant ministry, so you're not going to have it for those seven books. But look up the Bible Project on YouTube. This is like my best kept secret. I use this like 99% of the time when I talk about scripture. Um, there are these short dynamic videos that tell you the whole overarching theme and context of every single book of the Bible. And there's one or more videos for every single book in the Protestant Bible. There's missing those seven that we have as Catholics. And so I highly encourage you to look at that because then you'll avoid improperly interpreting what those themes may mean. Also recognizing there are certain things that um, that we may not understand if we look at the old context. There's um, language things. So the phrase, I am, uh, God is slow to anger. You heard that phrase? I, God is slow to anger. It shows up in a lot of the Psalms. The original Hebrew says, God is long of nose. That's what it means. Because in Hebrew tradition, if you were long of nose, that means you were older because your nose and your ears never stopped growing. It's a biological fact, sorry. But your nose and your ears never stopped growing. And so the longer your nose is, the wiser and older you are. And so that means God is ultimately wise because he is long of nose. And so he's less likely to get angry or be reactive as a younger person might be. So that's why it's translated God is slow to anger. But if it said God is long of nose, we would have no idea what the heck that means. So like, is God Pinocchio? I don't understand. He's not supposed to lie, right? So anyways, um, and then we cannot look at scripture solely for these critical historical things. Cannot look at it solely for the purpose of saying, Okay, well, God, obviously, just um, you know, these things are just interpreted historically in their context, and we can't devoid it of the supernatural. God still makes miracles work. And there are a lot of people who approach the Bible in a very scientific way and try and get the context, and then they try and explain away all of the miracles, all of the plagues, all the action of God, all the supernatural things, and we cannot discount those things either. So you don't need to be an expert. The church has 2,000 years of tradition and a whole realm of experts to help guide us. And so many resources out there. I have all these books, commentaries, different Bibles up here that if you'd like to see them after, different translations. There's a commentary. There's an interlinear Bible where you can see the Hebrew and the Greek right next to the English and start to see where some patterns emerge. They're great sources for study. But the best place that you can start is with the Sunday readings. As Catholics, we're expected to read and look at the Sunday readings before Sunday. I don't know if you knew that, but we're supposed to be preparing them. And that's not just when you're in RCIA, you're prepping for dismissal, right? That's your whole life. We're supposed to not have the Sunday Mass be the first time we heard those readings. And so you can look up on uh, Google Catholic Daily Readings and then toggle to the upcoming Sunday and read and pray through those. 
Because those cycle of readings are on a three-year cycle that if you go to church every single Sunday for three years, you'll hear about 60% of the Bible. And if, in fact, you went to daily Mass along with that, which has a two-year cycle for its readings, you would end up hearing about 90% of the Bible over that time. So spend time with the Word. And you can do that by doing these little practices that I have here on the sheet, especially Lexio Divina. So take a moment and look at that on the front of the sheet. This is a four-part reading through a particular verse or scripture in four different stages. And it's all laid out for you there, so I'm not going to read through it for you. There's also a modified version on the um, back side of that page and a similar version called the RAP method, where you read a passage, you write what stands out to you, you reflect on it, try and apply it to your own life, and then you spend some time in prayer uh, reflecting and pausing and allowing the Lord to speak to you. But Lexio Divina is a very ancient uh, form of scriptural devotion. You can turn to anything in scripture, but I highly recommend that you look to a gospel passage or to the Psalms to do this. And you can choose one verse or a short section of verses, and you read through it once, and you just notice what the passage says. That's Lexio. Then Meditatio, the second step, you read through it again, and you try and say, how is this speaking to me? This is getting at that personal interpretation. So you don't need to know the history. You don't need to know the context. You don't need to dive into the footnotes. You don't need to read all the preparatory stuff or go look up a Bible project video. But you just say, what is this speaking to me and reminding me of? And then the third step, you pray and you ask God, hey, this is what's standing out to me. This is what it's reminding me of. What are you trying to say to me? I think it might be this. Speak to me, Lord. And then you read it again a fourth time and then you just listen and you pray with the Lord. That's an easy thing you can go home and start doing today. Open your Bible to somewhere in the New Testament to a verse in the Psalms and pray with it. Read through it four times. It's also a very easy way to memorize verses. You know, a lot of times people will ask me, how do you memorize all these Bible verses? And so, well, I've just said like the same 10 over and over and over again, like my entire life. And that's it. It sounds like I know a lot, but I just know like the same 10 verses. So there's a lot more in the Bible, but a lot of that is just praying through these verses in a way like Lexio Divina. So I just want to encourage you, whatever it may be, start with a chapter, start with a gospel, read a chapter a day, read a verse a day, whatever it might be. There's a great podcast going right now, The Bible in a Year with Father Mike Schmitz that I think we've talked about in previous weeks. And you can start on day one today. You don't have to follow where they are. And he'll read the section of scripture for you and then he'll help you interpret it a little bit. 20 to 30 minutes every day. I listen to it on double time, even though he speaks very fast, so sometimes it's very hard and I have to slow it down. But that will get you through the whole Bible in a year. Next year, he's doing the catechism in a year. But that's something you can do to really dive into Scripture with the Lord. God has written his autobiography, the most important book in history, the story of love and unity, that God loves you and he wants to be united with you in relationship. And as complicated as it might be, as complex of a library with all these different genres as it might be, you have the tools that the church provided for you to help interpret those. We have a Bible study on Monday night that I lead as well that you would be more than welcome to come to. And we interpret that for the Sunday gospel. But whatever it is, I just want to encourage you, start praying with your Bible. I want to leave you with this. What if you treated the Bible like your cell phone? First thing you pick up in the morning, last thing you look at. If you leave the house without it, go back and get it. Expecting to receive messages from it looking to it for guidance, looking to it for how do I live my life? You know, a lot of times we turn to social media to look at influencers. This is the greatest influencer in human history. It's changed the world in the course of civilization. So what if for this week you treated your Bible like your cell phone? 
How would that change your life? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we know that with you all things are possible. And so we pray, Lord, that we would see our, ourselves in that great link of believers, that chain of believers, through that possible, impossible made possible story of salvation history. And that we would dive into your word, and we would hear your voice and your spirit leading and speaking to us. God us this week and help encourage us to dive into your word, no matter where we are in our understanding of scripture. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, my brothers and sisters, I hope that was a blessing to you. Stay tuned to parts two and three in the coming weeks. And if there were any resources or handouts referenced in the talk, they will be available for you in the show notes. God bless. Thank you.